so welcome everyone uh, to another session of uh, uh, globalized series of bharat pacific podcast this is our seventh episode or seventh session uh, today's couple of topics that we are going to discuss are canadian indo pacific strategy that canada has released recently and qatar fifa controversy uh, so the first uh, let's start with canadian indo pacific uh, strategy like uh, it's interesting that uh, canada has called it strategy while some traditional established indo pacific countries countries avoided to call it strategy they call it vision or something but it's interesting um uh, a few days ago they have released uh, there was a quite a long press conference i have gone through the document uh, there seems to be i mean my first impressions are that uh, it is in sync with justin trudeau's feminist uh, uh, foreign policy or like uh, human rights based foreign policy or uh, one who can say esg focused foreign policy I'm more tilting towards that uh, there is a lot of uh, mentioning about indigenous tribes uh, uh, women's rights lgbtq rights and all the other issues um very high emphasis on that but uh, moving away from that uh, the cursory i mean uh, there are four chapters to it in addition to what how in canada will pursue the strategy one the longest chapter is on china uh, then the, then the second most important focus seems to be on north pacific that is japan and uh, korean peninsula how canada will approach and what it will be then interestingly two muted chapters among the four chapters uh, asean chapter and india chapter seems to be muted in fact uh, india chapter seems to be entirely focused on uh, uh, the trade uh, aspects of it like uh, canadian trade interest with india and uh, how the upcoming trade agreement will be finalized and visas basically uh, the, the, it's focused on those two issues which i think again uh, reflects the india canada relationship also and uh, we, we we can discuss further like where it goes but uh, b- b- before discussing the document like uh, deeply i would like use finas to first go through like uh, i know that he has followed the press conference quite closely the canadian indo pacific press conference from uh, by the canadian foreign minister and other ministers also i i believe were present and uh, what has what do you have to say about it use finest like the how was the symbolism the uh, public viewing of how canada is projecting its indo pacific strategy uh well i'll put it this way it came off as a little bizarre and a little confusing so partially bizarre and partially confusing primarily because it's important to contextualize what happened uh, what is happening with this uh indo pacific strategy so canada actually had really good uh, okay let's not say really good but they had good relations with india under the previous uh administration which was the harper administration and uh, prime minister harper had done a lot of work to build the indo canadian relationship to the point where every, there was a sort of consensus that okay a new dispensation may come but the uh the wrinkles have been smoothened out and things will get better from here on out uh 
uh well then we had relations sour quite rapidly under justin trudeau and you know we can go into that but for the sake of brevity i'm just going to say that uh there were a series of missteps on the part of the canadian government that uh severely rankled india and um the indian dispensation which caused a lot of strain on the relationship and ever since then while the relationship has not frayed completely it has become sort of frozen because uh, the canadian dispensation under the current prime minister has drifted increasingly towards what you would describe as soft khalistani uh, and this is partially due to their own domestic policy and the pressures of domestic politics that justin prime minister justin trudeau is facing um so this is sort of the context in which we are operating now it is also important to realize while all of this is going on migration from india to canada has been increasing at an exponential rate uh, it has picked, it has really picked up stre- uh, steam off late and increasing number of indians are now starting to call canada home so with this in mind it would appear as though canada has you know a juicy full toss uh, on hand to just you know whack it out of the park and have a wonderful a opportunity to connect with a country like india much much faster and much much better than say uh, the french or even the israelis for that matter instead what happened is if you actually listen closely to the press conference it it sounded the impression was that we are being treated as this giant visa factory it, it was very unnerving because there's a lot of talk about how uh, first of all they didn't get to india they got to india like about 10 minutes into the press conference and when they did get to india they were talking about people to people connection and how they're opening a visa center in chandigarh and that was sort of their focus that we are opening a visa processing center in chandigarh in addition to another place and when you have an indo pacific strategy and your outlook on a country that shares a land border with china that currently has troops committed against the ccp and that is a maritime power in the indo pacific when when your approach to them when your outlook uh, outlook on them is oh my god visa oh my god people to people connection i think there's a there's a lot uh, to be desired from such a dispensation and of course we'll get into the uh, report which has its own problems but the press conference was really bizarre because i can tell you for a fact if you replay the press conference and watch very closely none of the ministers and there were at least three pretty important ministers there none of the ministers have any idea what's going on with the india policy they're just doing this very political thing of saying the right things that have absolutely no meaning it it, it was quite something to watch actually uh i congratulate and that experience use finest on a lighter note uh, i hope you had a good time following it closely but abhivardhan i will start with you like uh, let's start with the details of the document like uh, what is your first impression after going through the document abhivardhan so um, when you go through the uh, strategy which was published on the 30th of november well youth finance is spot on the strategy is confusing <laughs> and if you read this pdf which is 26 pages long which is fine to start with because canada did not have an indo pacific strategy properly and justin trudeau has been a prime minister for a long time So if you go to page number 1 the page number 1 focus is like you know they tell that okay there are five countries who are of the most priority uh ironically in that very map if you see they have also added pakistan which is i mean not in the countries but like in the map in the color of the geography 
so they have like and the main five countries prc japan india korea and australia but ఇండియా and then they go to north pacific and then they go to asean now one thing is that if you go to the india part i mean uh, what do they say they focus on the visa part which i find very funny i mean the white house doesn't need to do that in their strategy the european commission doesn't need to say for schengen right uh, you know you don't need to expect that from the uk government you don't need to expect that from israel if in case they also come up with i think they have or they will uh you can't expect that from deutschland germany but anyways canada is interesting <laughs> so most of the focus uh, which canada provides is actually on soft power on strategic considerations which is hard power they are completely out of the game like literally literally not expressing anything about it um i understand that quad is an arrangement where you are reluctant about it for a while but you will actually outgrow that but an indo pacific strategy will have security considerations so even on the india part that's absent then you when go to china okay the last point was at the multilateral level which is actually about china's role in multilateral bodies they also refer to the regional level issues with china they also talk about bilateral level dialogues they and then go to the domestic level aspects as to chinese entities and chinese individuals and the people to people ties with china even in this part with china they only refer to the human rights part of it which is fine but you don't even go to the hard power risk at all you don't even refer to the cyber technological and even other kinds of risk which are associated even the maritime issues now one thing which i find interesting in the strategy is the focus on the arctic a little bit which is through the north pacific but then i also find it funny that if you're focusing on the north pacific uh, why is security not so important in the canadian strategy so what actually it seems is that it is like a half baked strategy if you go to the part when it comes to north pacific what they say i'll just quickly read it out for all of you they say open new opportunities for security cooperation and there we say there they talk about security cooperation and so it clearly seems that their focus is very much limited to the arctic and since they're limited to the arctic i think their indo pacific strategy kind of is actually mirrored towards the arctic so it's a very north to north obsession that they are trying to show if they are actually saying that security cooperation matters this is one word which i have seen uh, security hasn't been mentioned often and uh, that's disappointing uh, they talk about the korean peninsula but again that's like a, you know a pretty pretty low key jargon like that's exactly how you know it is expected for a western country to do so so it is nothing significant but you know it is like uh, in a caricaturish manner quite quote and quote convincing so it's fine but it it, it doesn't convince and then they talk about six shared priorities which is why i had shared an article on japan and canada because uh, a few journalists and few scholars on japanese foreign policy believe that perhaps canada's strategy could actually help japan but i mean it's not that much uh, significant still even in the case of japan so let us say that they have had a larger emphasis beyond china 
to you know capitalize on japan and the north pacific but even in that case canada has abruptly failed so i don't know what they are trying to say they're talking about ensuring and launching the high level dialogues and all those things these are like basic niceties but it doesn't seem convincing and finally with the asean part i think i'll just quickly say that um they are actually trying to start some inroads for example they're saying they want to have a they want to seek membership in the asean defense minister meeting plus and so forth they want to seek negotiate the ftas and they want to in, enter into trade gateway so overall if i may just make it quickly uh the focus is this the china india focus is soft <laughs> um it's very soft power human rights ish then they are very much congratulatory and uh, uh self reflective on the trade part and the security part is uh, emblematic mostly in the segment related to the arctic part because the arctic, the arctic circle is critical so yes they are trying to show uh, show that they have on they want to flex like you know denmark might be a lot concerned these countries in scandinavia could be concerned so like canva is tra- uh, sorry not canva uh, canada is trying to show that aspect here so i think in conclusion it's a dismal document sadly but i mean that's what i can reckon from the document from a first and second reading yeah Be- before going to use finest i would like to put few impressions of mine like uh, first i found india part very condescending to be fair i mean uh limiting india to trade i mean okay trade part is genuine but like the visa services as if we are like a bpo center uh, and we are like the fa- fact uh, student factory production for canada like uh, to fulfill their university businesses and university economy i mean i found it really condescending and there was nothing new to add to it uh two i think uh, if we look at a canadian indo pacific document uh, in line with other indo pacific documents from other countries it is following the traditional asean centrality argument but in this case it's mere a formality it's just a one sentence in asean part that's it uh geographically its document seems to be again the o- old us indo pacific geographical assumption that is from hollywood to bollywood that is it is not focusing on the western indo uh, indian ocean uh it's primarily focused i mean there is no focus on india but at least even for the name sake from india to the north pacific and the canadian borders so that uh, so geographically its focus is uh, is same as old us strategy because i think us is uh, thinking on uh, changing its geographical definition of indo pacific i think uh, recently in the africa report uh, africa strategy report uh, they have specifically made their intentions clear that they want to um include africa in indo pacific forums and indonesian po- indian ocean forums so i think us is going to change their ge- geographical definition going forward and it will include africa especially east africa so those two are in, in like more broader lines those two are the key takeaways and i think the, the fourth takeaway seems to be the whole indo pacific document seems for me at least look like a document where canada just wants to expand its trade relations basically it look more like a trade document than a indo pacific document like like uh, what are the trade agreements they want to sign with whom they wants to sign including indo pacific economic framework uh, free trade agreement with asean how the korean free trade agreement is produ- uh, developing how the trade with japan is trading and with respect to india the trade was the only part they discussed apart from visa so it it was mostly half of it was a trade document 
however use finest one part which i liked and it was clear maybe because of its uh, uh, bitter huai experience with china the china part was quite clear and uh, it took a kind of a clearer stand on china so i, I would like to hear what do you think about its chinese part uh, well my my thoughts about the chinese parts are actually colored by the document as a whole so let me just so there are multiple strains to look at here but when you look at all of them together they sort of form a clearer picture so if you look at the document as a whole first of all i'll tell you why i find it bizarre right i said partially bizarre at the beginning is because in this entire 20 odd page document india occupies one paragraph right i i'm not even joking go to the document look it up india has one paragraph and the map they use for india is the map that is bereft of the pakistani occupied part and the uh, part that china occupies now i understand okay the the western countries are known to use the sort of distorted map but as i was saying in a in a tweet earlier not the best idea to be pulling stunts like this after you go soft on the khalistanis which you know is a massive massively sensitive issue to the current dispensation right number 1 number 2 if you look at the document uh, you are right there is very clear signaling on what on how they look at china and i have no objections about that i'm glad they're very clear about how they view china there's only one problem when you're signaling on your overall policy document in your overall policy document that you are quote unquote more to the anti side of china rather than the pro side of china you would expect that in the document your relations as it pertains to countries surrounding china also receives a lot of attention because if you're identifying china as a security risk which let's be honest that's the sub subtext given the sort of foreign interference they've been running in canada that's caused uh firestorms within the news media over there you would expect a security focus when it comes to india and i understand this is a policy document so you know they won't they don't have to go into the weeds and they can keep it a bit vague but if you ever hear the french speak or the british speak or the american speak they have a way of conveying uh security considerations without always necessarily saying we are strengthening military relations with india to counter china they may not say that explicitly but they have a way of putting that across as both of you have just brought up if you read that one paragraph that they've written about india it's like yeah we opened visas for them and there might be a trade deal which i'm like okay thank you i understand that's important for both you and me but l- let's be honest here you could have done a little bit more right especially when a country like france which doesn't even speak english as its first language is able to succinctly convey how it views the indo pacific right which to be fair is even more nuanced than the canadian view the other uh, part of this entire document that i found incredibly bizarre is that they are signaling that they are uh, they they are taking into consideration the security paradigm with regards to china and then spend the literally the rest of the entire document ignoring that paradigm I mean, I, I think it was Abhivardhan who brought up this point, or maybe it was you, Aditya, the the feminist foreign policy thing. And look, I have no no objections against that. If your soft power is such that on a uh, on a human to human basis, you can push your country's interests uh, via NGOs or via civil society in another country, go for it, right? But we know for a fact that Canada doesn't have that kind of hold, at least for now, within India. and we know that if if you're signaling that china is a massive security issue for you back home you would want 
greater security considerations with its immediate neighbors at the point i was making earlier which again it, it doesn't occur so on the one hand you're playing this game of i'm going to go really hard on china and then on the other hand you're like yeah i'm i'm going to do nothing about it i'm just saying i'm anti china which which strikes me as incredibly bizarre it's like uh you know pointing a gun at someone and saying i'm going to shoot you and then telling them i have no ammunition in my gun right okay then what was the point of picking up the gun pointing it at someone and saying i'm going to shoot you that's what it seems like to me it's just all over the place loopholes upon loopholes and i know people are saying that you know oh this is good this is uh, the canadian seem to have a coherent a coherent strategy in place but i'm sorry i don't see it i just see one 20 page document that is a hot confused mess created by a government that is yet to understand how severely it is straining a relationship with the country it should ideally be you know i don't know singing songs with that like, is just bizarre to me i have no other way to put it uh, i have like couple more questions the, the like one question i want to seriously ask avivardhan is how do you see this like see indo pacific document especially when you say strategy it's supposed to highlight on like the grand strategy of how it will approach its threats and challenges and what what would be the broader outline how the country will address those threats and challenges and how important indo pacific it is on the broader lines but for me it looked like this was just extension of justin trudeau's domestic social policy agenda i don't have any problem with feminist foreign policy and all if they want to pursue it good as abhi use finest was also saying but it should be the undercurrent it should not be the dominant feature of a document as important as this you could have a, a, other policy documents on international development finance international development corporations and all but for me every paragraph every under, uh, underlying issue seems to be just surrounding those issues and i found it confusing the repeated focus on indigenous tribes like every second paragraph there was mention of indigenous tribes i don't know what they mean by that when they are talking about the such a uh, grand strategy and i mean how do you see this approach maybe i think one approach uh, um, that is common to other indo pacific documents is the climate focus and i think even in the g20 i think india will focus highly on climate agenda and i think going forward climate will not be seen as a regular development uh, thing i think it will become broader aspects of everything basically now that is the common norm seems to be but abhivardhan yeah thanks aditya so see um, what happens is that there is no problem to focus on indigenous people okay i mean there are so many indigenous people there are people of local origins and so so forth and within the domain of international cultural law environment law and so forth you can have a justification but the united states if they had done that tell me why would they do it through the state department or the white house right doesn't make sense right so so for see uh, it's not about human rights is bad or something no human rights has certain universal features which has to be appreciated by every country in some ways it's not that china cannot or india cannot we have to everybody but what does it mean that's the main point so it means nothing it's a hogwash and sadly um, it's it's actually a lose lose situation for canada not others see countries may find a way to manage china and you know find other actors but if canada doesn't have it have their own share to contribute and then they are making these confusing policies it is not good because 
then it it also shows that your domestic agenda is very populist and your populist your domestic agenda is actually tantamount to your own foreign policy i mean if you just see dr jayashankar's speeches and even anthony blinken's speeches both of them focus on one aspect that domestic policy matters in their countries but uh, you will not expect uh, from uh, india and even the us i mean the us has issues we see senators and congressmen but that doesn't matter much i mean uh, even the biden administration and even the modi government both of them have a clear approach that you know what domestic considerations which are pragmatic based on interests based on the hard realities let's look at them it's fine to recognize human rights of indigenous people that is justifiable but i don't think that an indo pacific strategy should cover that well i think it should have been a case to you know cover the issue of climate refugees and others but then again i think like india beautifully does it with climate change and all to focus on the politics and dynamics of economy uh, sorry development especially what happened in g20 bali summit and what's going to happen in this uh, delhi delhi based presidency that india's uh, focus on weaponizing uh, the economics of development that is going to be one of the biggest achievements of india and canada could not understand that see this also shows you the failure of the law and development studies on you know canada when it comes to the canadian thinking so it is something which is dismal if it is domestic politics based then it means then that they have lost the 101 basics of foreign policy they have to understand that these things from from an ideological point of view can work for a gallery it can't work for the rest of the world i mean just to say i don't think even the p- people in canada whom this like this pandering is supposed to cater to they would even bother reading the document i mean it's it's not related to them they won't read indo pacific document come yeah, on yeah and if i may add quickly on this uh that actually compromises the government's uh, position because as you're rightly saying why would the group care about it so it's a compromised document in certain ways because you have to be i mean you have to be clear about it you have to show something concrete you don't have to say something which is blunt in foreign diplomat foreign policy language we all know that like there's a very interesting tweet by gerard arod former french diplomat he says that trust is not a word in foreign policy while uh, uh, ambassador kamal sibbal he actually said on twitter that he might disagree with that you can actually see that exchange but he's right what gerard arod said that trust is not such a word which can be used in fundamental uh, foreign foreign policy why it's the case the case is very simple you just can't have terms which have abstract meaning what is trust how do you materialize it in foreign policy what do you mean by it so maybe from a french perspective it could not be the case maybe from an indian perspective it could be same for canada if you're using these jargons the, you are using these words you have to mean what you mean and you have to be clear on it I, i and on the ngo part i don't think they have much influence right now they have certain actors and um, the the economy of it is weird but let us see i mean it's a disappointing foreign policy strategy uh, i'll i'll add something if you have some specific questions but yeah yeah before going to the final part about indo pacific use final just a brief comment on do you see like uh, any rapprochement between india and canada under indian g20 leadership when it comes to esg issues especially something like climate or disaster response yeah i think the indian i think broadly speaking the indian response will be like okay i mean if if we are a bit frozen right now let, let's try let's try to thaw it out let's try to move ahead because i think india's gradualism accounts for such speed bumps along the road 
like uh, like the french relationship very famously it was really good once upon a time then it went cold for a bit and now it's back to you know being warm again so i think india will continue to build bridges with the canadian government regardless of uh, the antics that are to come hopefully they don't but if they are i'm sure we'll absorb them and move ahead and i don't think india is going to stop now because uh, if you just look at it from the migration point of view so many indians are now going to canada so many indians are now settling there so many indians are now working there so many indians are studying there uh, it's the same thing with the us it's impossible to not keep building bridges because there's too much people to people contact happening and there's too much being wasted in the relationship for it to be just allowed to wither away i mean it's it's not something both countries uh, can afford to allow that's how i would put it so yes engagement will continue and to add yeah. on this there are actually task forces uh, since orf has taken the secretariat of t20 there are two task forces on environment since you know everybody lectures india unreasonably sometimes uh, there is one task force on life resilience and values for well being uh, which focuses on lifestyle for environment uh, proposed by the indian prime minister um, then there is obviously the second task force which is on green transition on environment others are on you know disruptive tech reform multilateralism you can read about that so and it's already happening the rbi is encouraging policies on green finance so india's way ahead from a global south perspective yeah yeah so the final uh, topic that i would like to discuss on this indo pacific thing is not i mean which emanates from even canadian document but at the larger uh, point i think i would like to have separate session some day on this issue that is where the where do the geographically especially geographically where do east africa and western uh, latin american countries figure in the indo pacific idea of indo pacific for all this indo pacific powers basically because like india considers east africa as part of especially western indian ocean countries as part of its indo pacific us has kind of neglected until recently and it says it will perhaps revise that notion but i do think through i2u2 india and us are somehow to some extent already engaging in, within that framework but like if you see canada or like others and when it comes to uh, pacific countries like especially southern american countries few of them are part of cptpp cptpp is one of the only other regional trade agreements big regional trade agreements that's in uh, the indo pacific region apart from rcep so i would like to know like where do these regions figure in actually what is their importance like should major powers focus like try to bring in these countries and i know for the fact that perhaps some of these countries may not want to figure into this strategy or these documents or these ideas because for latin america and for africa china matters in terms of their development funding so yeah use finance i will start with you i think the matter of how much investment goes into those two countries because if i'm not wrong one of the main reasons this topic is even coming up is because it is at least partially linked to the amount of investment china has sunk into africa especially uh, how much it uses the african uh, sorry how much it started using um, africa for its expansion um, debate debatable as the economics may be and now i think the us is now also slowly starting to understand uh, why it's important to sort of counteract these developments especially as uh, france goes through its own weird uh, frana freak phase franc afrique phase i i would be very hesitant in making any sweeping assertions for now 
because it's just it, it's one of those things where people are saying okay this is a possibility that has risen uh, xyz could happen but nothing has happened yet so to speak the, the major developments that would sort of shape how these countries interact with what we today consider to be conventionally the indo pacific uh, those events are yet to occur like for example here's a very uh, elementary question we know for a fact that galwar um shaped the uh, shaped indian participation in quad it influenced indian participation much more so than almost any other event that had uh, preceded it. it you could call it sort of the galvanizing moment for india and from then on you've uh, seen a series of um call it meetings call it uh, approaches to the indo pacific call it policy documents you've seen concentration on the indo pacific from a variety of european powers that broadly also ties into sort of the security arrangements that are coming up in the indo pacific similarly what sort of shaping patterns are we seeing uh, for africa or for latin america uh, keeping the economic angle aside those security concerns are yet to prop up and you know this may be a stretch but i i will argue that unless we start seeing those security considerations prop up in these countries they will always remain sort of in this conversation of oh uh, this this portion of the world's geography is now involved with the indo pacific i think we need to wait a while i think we need for the economics to intersect with the security considerations and then i think we'll have a little bit more of a stable footing to say okay this is how we see xyz country uh, from a certain geography interact with the indo pacific before that i would be hesitant to make any sweeping comment because it, it's sort of like building castles in the air according to me you have anything to add abhivardhan before we jump into qatar thing yeah so we'll quickly do that but i have uh, you know i need just if you can just remind me the question quickly please yeah no like uh, as i was saying especially in terms of the geographical imagination of pacific like us doesn't include or doesn't focus on africa in its indo pacific idea but india does right. even france does so, okay and like where do countries like uh, from latin america especially the western latin america they... and eastern africa figure in okay so i'll just be quick because we have to talk about fifa and qatar so um for africa it is very simple that the united states will have to revisit its approach now the imperial past obviously haunts and then obviously the economics of engaging with the africans has to do with two aspects first security dynamics where does the united states wish to change things secondly i know that we had this discussion with abhishek mishra from orfn very interesting interview which you all every every one of you can go to bharatpacific.com or bharat pacific's youtube channel so um in this discussion abhishek said that india us europe they hype a lot on china's involvement and you know so a counter involvement is needed somebody else who actually can take the helm in african countries help the african people build their resources and critical systems but again to be pragmatic in your cooperation if india and europe are trying to do it economically there must be a pragmatic basis for it so like is i have to also back out on this to say that you know what let that churn out and mature with time and then we will be able to cater and know how the united states will go through because the biden administration may leave a cornerstone until some other administration comes from gop or democrat on uh, development economics and development politics 
on development cooperation the us has to lead not the european union right now maybe the european union can be a mediator here but they have to have a new approach so i'll just stand there so abhivardhan uh, this time i would like to ask you if you would, would like to take the lead on qatar issue sure yes so you, you can start the qatar uh, thing all right so uh, most probably uh, we will also have uh, somebody interesting to talk about qatar um but to begin with see the qatar controversy is interesting and i'm not a football fan to discuss about the specific instances perhaps rishab would be more interested in it and uh, we would be happy to see him if he's interested but yeah i mean uh, on this controversy with uh, qatar being the host of this world cup i mean let's be clear about it um we had to expect that from qatar and uh, uh, they have invited a an in, a, a quote and quote expert on islam called zakir naik and all that stuff and kind of that also you know fogged out because you're not discussing that anymore too much but uh, qatar has actually uh, outplayed it pretty interestingly so um i would be interested to know if uh, rishab wishes to put in some views can you guys um, i mean you guys can anybody else who wants to go first i mean i don't mind waiting Okay. I mean uh, the the thing I would like to continue from here is there are three aspects to the whole Qatar controversy basically and I personally also like when I talk to Europeans the most emphasis seems to be from the European young people especially passionate football fans who actually see sport as some kind of a reflection of their human rights or what they think what it stands for them personally so I am kind of confused when the Olympics happened in Beijing. i mean i i have clearly it was very long time ago and i was not following the foreign policy aspects that clearly so i don't know how the media covered it then but talking to different people and reading different articles it seems like beijing was not under as much a scrutiny as qatar seems to be now and if i remember even russia was not under that scrutiny when it when it hosted fifa world cup for example so why this disproportionate amount of scrutiny on qatar specifically when it comes to human rights though i i would like to highlight that india has a particular india should have taken particular interest in this because many of our migrants actually faced lot of uh, uh, inhuman conditions and lot of people lot of uh, indian migrants have died there so it is interesting that international media has focused on that much than our indian media itself but yeah now anyone wants to continue i mean just to your first question i think see there is no no doubt um that human rights etc have become more um you know basically they become kind of the centerpiece of the conversation more than they were let's say in 2008 etc or something and of course you also have to remember that um when the beijing olympics happens that happened at that time uh the relationship it had with the other powers whether it was europe or the united states was very different and diplomatically they were you know at a very different place where they are now comparatively so it was a very different thing but i mean a lot of people can talk about for example uh, the the winter olympics or um uh, as you rightly pointed out even the russian uh, world cup in 2018 
i mean remember it was after the invasion of crimea right so i mean of course uh, why the question about why this has been such a uh, why there has been such a big deal about qatar is i think primarily because of the conversation around migrant deaths i do not think it would have been that bad um uh, also i think initially if i mean i've been following this for a long time when the bids actually happened uh, the whole uh, unraveling of fifa and how this bidding process happened actually made things worse i remember that after um, the 2006 world cup when we were just heading into south africa uh, you know it is at that time when the bidding process etc everything the reviewer process starts and when it was being decided about where uh, the 2018 world cup will be held uh, i think it took uh, generally it, there is a kind of a gap between selecting the other world cup now this time around it was kind of decided that both of them will be awarded uh, at the same time and uh, the gap was not there so already eyebrows were being raised etc now why this is worse is because of course of the absurdity i mean let's be honest if you if anybody has followed this closely qatar was not suited to have the world cup uh, in the sense that uh, not just the fact that there weren't any stadiums etc i don't think that's a legit reason because you know countries uh, country like qatar can of course spend money in building the building infrastructure that's that's not the problem the problem was primarily the weather right and weather was a problem and clearly is a problem because remember this is i think prob- if i'm not wrong there's probably the first time that the world cup is happening at this point of time right uh, so they ha- they are holding it uh, in their winter season so to speak like basically the, the the weather is cooler at this point so still it's quite hot so i think all of these things got together and of course uh, after i mean as i said in the last 2 3 years things have gotten worse and let's be honest i mean um, most of the world cups that we've had it's not like corruption wasn't there it's not like you know all these conversation were not happening people again don't remember but or people may have not studied this deeply i mean most people know but football fans know but even the 20 2006 world cup uh, was marred with controversy of corruption same with the korean world cup right uh, same with in, even the south african world cup so i think the reason why qatar has become come at the center stage is because i think there is of course genuine concerns about the migrant deaths etc which are not as bad as some people in the west seem to suggest but they are still quite bad right and especially for people from south asia or the subcontinent we know how bad it is uh, but there is also i mean at the same time and i think probably we can expand on this a little later also remember that there is also also a sense of geopolitics involved here i mean there's all there always is but this whole idea about sports washing etc i mean remember russia beat who exactly uh, russia beat the beat the uk uh, and qatar beat the us in the final rounds right so there was a sense of that as well and i mean of course i mean it's not like it's, i'm not saying that uk and us do not have the uh, i mean they are probably the best suited for holding these things but the whole idea about the global world cup right a global sport is to try to hold it in other places now of course nobody wants to uh, condone what happened and how it has 
happened and you know their lives have been lost so i do understand that some people you know would would not want to glorify this world cup so much but there is an element of i would say slight racism as well right uh, because in lot of these conversations that i came across a lot of people were talking about these countries not having a football culture i mean you know i mean that's not that's not true uh but yeah i mean i'm happy to to just start from there maybe others can like to would like to join yeah be- before going into like uh, topics of like uh, what's in it for qatar geopolitics and all before then i would like to just like you to comment briefly on why has not indian media focused on how indian migrants were facing among all these projects in qatar what does that say about indian media or indian politicians so i know that us finest might be interested to talk about it so i'll be very sh- short on this see um the same case why uh, the indian media is very ignorant on things happening in you know africa and other countries so it's largely their ignorance they are obsessed with the anglophone sometimes they're obsessed with france and a bit on europe but um um on the issue of the ex servicemen in qatar on the issue of other people who are stuck who are of indian origin or indian citizenry the indian media is very careless and sadly to say the national media does not i mean just just science. just sorry just to push back a little bit and you know i'm not a great fan of indian media yeah. but uh, i think it's a little unfair i'll tell, I'll tell you why it's unfair to say that they didn't hello i think okay. he's crashed yeah perhaps no issues i mean yeah okay abhivadan would you like to continue on that or shall i move on to i suggest uh, so i'll just quickly say i mean uh, there's a little bit issue with the kind of reporting they do but i think uh, let us see what rishab says i think uh, uh, until rishab comes back uh, use finest you can actually add the views further and uh, rishab then can circle circle in yeah yes circle. i i saw you wanted to add few points uh, in addition to what you you would like to add i would just like you to also uh, ponder upon what's in it for qatar to put 10x amount of money f- to build infrastructure compared to previous fifa hosts to face all this negative pr to risk everything like what's in it it has deployed all its resources al jazeera narrative uh, war like uh, it has funded all the columns on islamophobia what's in it for qatar basically why is it like i don't know if it's risking but why is it facing it head on like why is it lose, uh, ready to lose so much money on it uh so i'll i'll be very quick about this uh, one on your point about why the, there's a difference of coverage on say qatar as compared to china or russia uh, i would like to point out that when beijing occurred uh china was living in the afterglow of deng's china so there was still that amount of goodwill that uh, deng's fp establishment had managed to build up up to that point so china wasn't yet full wolf warrior you know calling people names in uh, press conferences more so that's why there was a tilt in the coverage because people were sort of more willing back then to overlook certain quote unquote negative things even if you look at russia you know they did georgia in 08 and they, as risha pointed out just give me one second uh i'm sorry so as you noted in uh as rishab noted there was crimea in 2014 but even then uh, the 
sort of uh, fp established the sort of fp culture around that time was still okay we can still work through this there was a light sanction way that given but that was about it uh, i think what happened is since then and since the election of trump i would say uh, things have substantially changed especially the way uh, the americans perceive russia and china and the china shift started even before uh, biden came to office it started uh, somewhere before trump and through trump uh, so that was one point second point on the uh, indian media thing i genuinely think it's a case of a the indian media not uh, not understanding how to sort of pitch the story because it is a highly sensitive story it's basically slave labor dying building these uh, massive complexes and being abused after having their passports confiscated and i think that while some organizations are capable of presenting the story in the way it's meant to be presented i think it genuinely also scares a lot of people because this is not something you can just flash and while i know we have you know news channels that not too long ago used to you know show dead bodies on screens sadly i think the media has moved on since then and the second thing is i think it's a little more pragmatic because there are just better news stories to cover in india that gives them uh, better clicks so you know between doing a story about something that may you know avert the case that may not generate enough trps versus something that will generate trps elections for instance or election coverage they'll go for the latter and to the question you asked me about qatar i just think i think it's a case of qatar trying to elevate its geopolitical heft through its soft power is done this quite well with media and i think because uh, they have the money to spare they're like okay why not uh, go through with the sports washing scheme and see what sticks unfortunately for them it's not gone perhaps as well as they would have liked it to have gone but you know that's sort of my take it's it's an it's an attempt to elevate their geopolitical position via soft power Uh, Rishab, would you like to reflect upon because yeah. I think you kind of touched upon everything basically. He also included yeah, geopolitics. I think sorry, I I dropped out in between. But um, uh, on the part of Indian media not covering it, uh, I agree with some of the things you said. Uh, but I would also say this that I think uh, first, I mean, a lot of people. I mean, yes, a lot of people watch football in India, etc. uh but a lot of people who watch news tv news probably do not actually uh, really care about that much i mean the the, the demographics etc i mean it's not like the indian media do not cover it at all uh, what i think you are referring to is uh, the slave death and how etc etc and you know, things i would say that it didn't probably cover it as vehemently as it people would like it to be is because it's not unusual it's not like because i've been saying this that you know the death rates for the fall were not as high as some reports suggest i mean if people in india want to take amnesty's report at face value go ahead do it but then do remember that you know how some of these reports can be i'm not i'm again i'm not undermining that there haven't been deaths but and i'm not again endorsing qatar's official position which is a little of course they say that only three worker related deaths have happened uh, in, in direct uh, di- in projects directly related to the world cup stadiums etc of course they've built also at the same time they haven't just built stadiums they haven't, they haven't just built 18 stadiums etc they've built almost cities the final the place where the final is going to happen actually they have not just built the stadium but like the almost an entire city with an infrastructure they built hotels etc because they did not have um the uh, places to for 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 the incoming tourists to stay so um i think the whole uh, system the kafala system is already uh, something which is uh, which is totally known about i mean again also at the same time 
I would also say that one of the reasons why India did not, uh, Indian media didn't cover it because, I mean, how much do we care about Indian migrants in India? I mean, I mean, let's be honest, we we don't really cover that cover it that that much. Uh, one exception, of course, being small the interjection, small interjection. The focus, I mean, the repeated emphasis of mine on Indian media or perhaps Indian government also. I can I, I imagine Indian um, government. Uh, why? What? Why? I mean, it's. Do you I think mean, that? Do you think Indian? How, how many? How many Indians do you think died there? No, yes. no, I, I'm not pointing on that perspective. My, 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 my point is, my point is, the kafala system is there. It's alive and kicking. No, no let me clarify. We are going hmm. in different direction. Let me clarify. The only reason why I'm saying is this: even though Indian Indian policy response with respect to domestic migration would be different, but this government, particular in the last decade, has prioritized diaspora politics, diaspora interests, Indians in abroad, basically. So from but, that perspective, but even but if diaspora Indian... is yeah true. I mean yes, ideally yes. I'm saying I'm not saying that it shouldn't be. I'm just saying that. it's already a problem otherwise the scale of which uh, this thing the scale of the whole uh, uh, way in which slave labor gets exploited in in the whole gulf region is not something new it's not something which comes comes out from the world cup and of course also remember that um, if if the government overreacts on this it can have geopolitical consequences not in terms of uh, foreign policy etc but also in terms of uh, you know because these countries remember are very sensitive right now of course they don't react to what lot of the western media or western governments say of course but if the indian media says something on let's say qatar right and of course remember a lot of people did say that oh you know we should have done this because of nupur sharma look how they did all that stuff i mean yes but again we also do not want to go too overboard because we have good relation with uh, west asia we 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 like the fact that there are people who go there migrant laborers who go there they send you know uh, uh, you know uh, them their money back home so i mean it it's it's not a straightforward situation in that sense um but yes of course uh, governments all across the world should be more vocal on this but but i would say like at some point of time i mean qatar has spent what almost 300 billion dollars Right, two hundred something. Uh, if by some figures, uh, how many other Asian countries or African countries or any basically countries in uh, the eastern part of the world can do that? Probably, probably maybe China, but China already has that much of infrastructure uh, there. So my point is that uh, yes, Qatar had a lot of issues. I think some of it got uh, accentuated with the fact that you know there was this uh, whole alcohol ban. and of course with um with it's one one thing i think most of us haven't touched upon remember there was a blockade of qatar <laughs> a lot i mean I, i don't know how many of you know remember this but the 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 gulf countries especially the saudi led coalition at that moment of time had uh, you know blockaded qatar and i think as you pointed out before um yes it was about geopolitics yes it, it was about a little bit of soft power so to speak it was also about investment right investment in their own infrastructure which is very important now a lot of people say that oh, how much of this infrastructure is going to uh, stay later or how much i mean is are these projects going to be white elephants etc not all of them no i don't think they will be so i think a lot of uh, the projects that they built they've also looked at it from a national building kind of a process 
do remember that when the blockade happened uh, a lot of these country with like when the blockade thing was you know kind of uh, waning waning off saudi arabia and others wanted in in the world cup they basically told qatar okay you know what we'll we'll live the uh, we'll, we'll live the blockade why don't you give us some of some of the matches there of course that did not happen because qatar managed to you know get its supply chain issues in order they managed to get all the essentials uh, from t- countries like turkey etc so they managed to basically diversify all their um, uh, especially imports etc which they depend on so for qatar i think this was a very important uh, not just a prestige issue or a soft power issue but also uh, in terms of you know getting back out there uh, in the world not just with you know play nice with the western countries etc and, and I, i want to make this one point and, and this probably is not something which will be uh, popular but if you look at the kafala system and the regulations that are there in west asian countries right now as we speak um the most reformed uh, space the most reformed kafala like kafala system is most properly regulated in qatar as of now now you may say that things may deteriorate after the world cup maybe they will i don't know but the point is that they they have kind of worked with uh, some labor organizations of course again i'm not saying it's not enough it's it's not enough at all but all i'm saying is that singling out qatar in that part of the world is a little too much i mean especially for human rights etc and i know that other countries will also have the same issue and sports washing is not just about the world cup remember a lot of people a lot of these countries and investors in this country sovereign wealth uh, f- funds have been used to purchase football you know football clubs in other parts of the world right so it's going to be an interesting issue i mean it is already an interesting issue especially you know after the russian invasion of ukraine country in countries like uk etc there has been a lot of talk about you know foreign money of these oligarchs etc which coming in i mean so it's it's under more scrutiny now i mean human rights etc is there but i will say that you know fifa has also not invested in develop in the developing world right and a lot of people say well well you know what about other countries don't have stadiums so what so how will they build right there's a reason why uh, i mean yes seb blatter did a lot of things wrong but uh, and of course there were a lot of bribes paid uh, and they were also disguising these money as developmental projects etc in the developing world but it is true that a lot of work fifa tried to do especially in the early days in the first 10 uh, first decade of this century uh it was some good work in countries like africa so i'm say, i'm just saying that you know it for it to be a global sport and you see that there was some difference here i mean people are people are looking at things a little differently and this is not a bad world cup i mean sporting wise this has been a good world cup right i mean i i don't think it has been a bad world cup so to speak it's been nicely organized um there are issues of course but i'm just saying that probably we also have to look at the fact that a lot of these countries want world cups themselves especially the ones who already have the existing infrastructure right countries like the uk and the us and guess who's the who's the country which is going to hold the next world cup right a western nation i mean remember to 2010 24 2010 in south africa 2014 in uh 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 brazil i think 2018 in russia and 2022 in qatar so it's been almost almost more than a decade now that the world cup hasn't gone to any european nation right and it is finally now that in the fifa hierarchy as well the uefa president the former uefa president is now the uh fifa president right so 
there's some part of that also little bit of geopolitics subtle you know governments leaning in etc uh, which they did by by the way in the bid also right a lot of these gas projects etc happened between france and others etc so there's some some part of that as well yeah i would like to just uh, say that about the white elephant parts i do agree with rishab uh, to an extent that entirely not all projects won't necessarily be white elephants because i think a lot of the west asian economies are also trying to build new cities diversify their economy diversify their like basically even saudi is having this building new cities pro- like planning to build new cities uae also kind of working on it so i think they will uh, redirect some of the existing infrastructure towards those efforts so maybe perhaps not entirely all projects will be wild elephant the last point i would like to focus on this qatar issue is for instance qatar has pressured fifa to like not to let countries wear bands on lgbtq issues like other issues it has managed to successfully not let fifa uh, allow players to go through all that things that qatar doesn't believe in however qatar has tacitly encouraged even though Ta- qatar has given permission for israeli uh, tourists to come in and visit qatar participate in the world cup uh, like uh, uh, the whole event basically uh, the people have responded very hostilely to uh, israel and i think the qatar has encouraged the whole palestine issue and i think it's reported very very widely like abhimanyu would you like to highlight on that like uh, the way the israeli reporters israeli people are facing hate during the world cup and how qatar is kind of letting palestine issue be highlighted but not letting other issues that west would like to highlight stop them i'll be quick i think rishab might wish to add more um it's sad what happened and i saw a few videos wherein i think there were people from palestine and so forth or maybe some other arab region and they were shouting about israeli jews and what not so um it's kind of natural to happen but it just obviously can, can i ask aditya how how uh, how are you equating the lgbt because the lgbt issue was concerned not just off the pitch but specifically with regards to the armband some teams european teams decided to wear yeah, 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 which yeah, goes yeah. against fifa regulations so how are you equating the palestine issue inside the stadium is but there any the whole idea was to not let any political agenda go through the event right i am so how did how did qatar allow uh, a palestinian agenda inside the stadium inside i mean on the pitch i think players have, i mean i, I don't recollect exact i think uh, many of the players have actually uh, espoused palestinian cause in uh, that they can outside that they can do outside i mean in general i mean yeah. that a lot of them do yeah so even uh, i thought i don't think players can do that it was more moreover like a set of people in the audience who were shouting but players no even i mean they don't not even morocco or any of these islamic countries they won't do that as players audiences are wild i mean audiences can do anything i mean that's what we expect in cricket matches right so <laughs> with audiences not players yeah Okay, thanks for that clarification. And so I was basically mis- I mistook something. See, I think I think I think the problem the problem I mean any everything to do with the Palestine issue has I think I've seen outside the stadium fans saying stuff. I mean, of course, there's been uh, some open display of anti-Semitism, etc. But that's again um, 
I mean, I wouldn't say that's normal in mostly European countries or Western countries. You probably not see something like that so openly, but who knows? Um, yes, I mean, the, uh, I think I found the justification of the Qatari minister um, fair that he said everybody is welcome, but um, not you cannot uh, dis- show or display affection publicly. Now, a lot of people or the pushback that uh, he received at the time, and I've seen a lot of interviews, um, the the retort, of course, is that can a gay person or can a homosexual uh, or anybody from any gender orientation, can they be openly, you know, can they openly display, you know, this, this, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the, the, the response he said was that, you know, anybody can... Uh, nobody can actually display affection in Qatar because we are a modest country, a modest society, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, I find that a little bit understanding. See, again, I'm not saying that. Again, a lot of people say that this is something which is against the ethos, and of course, a lot ministers would say this, but there can be elements of discrimination on the ground as well, right? Um, and a lot of these countries. I mean, I mean, of course, a World Cup in Brazil would be very different for people from, you know. Uh, I mean, yes, these kind of issues will not be as sharp as they are here. And again, that's a cost that 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 is there. But on the pitch, so to speak, I don't see there being any equation between the two. I think the, there was a problem with Harry Kane and the England team deciding that they would wear armbands to display or send that political message. And FIFA basically told them that if you do that, we'll issue you yellow cards to all of your players. Um uh, so I think that's why they backed down and then the German team, you know, did that whole thing in the beginning where they, you know, uh, put the hands on their mouth, etc. or send a message that FIFA is basically gagging them, so to speak. Um, but I don't think anybody or any other uh, Palestinian issue was propped up by Qatar, etc. I don't think that happened. Um, but yes, there there was some display of anti-Semitism, etc., which is, of course, not nice to see. Um, very openly, so to speak, but 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 again, I, I guess these are issues which already exist in all these countries, and hopefully they are being worked upon as we see. But yes, these are societal issues which will be highlighted in this part of the world. Let's be honest. I mean, even our, in our country, there are issues such as this. I mean, when India-Pakistan matches happen, we know what happens not just online but also offline, right? So these things happen, but I don't think they should be the reason why. Um, a country should be denied the chance to hold the World Cup. They should be criticized no, I'm for not it. That. I don't think I, I agree with yeah, you. Yeah, they I'm, should be criticized for it. But I think officially Qatar hasn't propped up the issue, uh, the Palestine issue. But of course, there has been some fan interaction, etc. Which I think is fine. I mean, they they are. I mean, you doesn't matter where you stand on the ge- on on the geopolitics of it. I have one last thing to discuss on this before we close the tank. But before the tankman, you raise the hand. Do you have anything? Yeah, a comment uh, to say that. Uh, the Moroccan team, after the last 16 game, they did uh, raise the Palestinian flag uh, on the pitch. So, yeah, I mean, but 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 again, uh, uh, that's a little bit different than actually. And again, you, I mean, you have to remember uh, that's an issue. I mean, I don't know if they've been penalized for it, but I don't really think that FIFA told them not to wave any particular flag. Flag waving is not the problem. Problem, of course, happens specifically when you're trying to send a send a message with the armband. Again, these things are very, I mean, of course, there's sort of gray lines. Remember, I mean, we know what happens in cricket also, right? Uh, where Dhoni wore, wore that particular, I think it was gloves or something. Was it uh, something related to uh, uh, special the, forces? 
camouflage yeah special forces and you know they of course said no political messaging etc but then kneeling down is fine so certain gestures are fine i don't think there is a problem with a particular flag especially after the game i might i, I i'm not entirely sure but there could be an argument could be made but i think that's after the match during the match i don't think anything specifically was being pushed and let's be honest uh, waving a particular flag you'll see if you go to any serbia uh uh in the balkans etc you'll see uh, you know these kind of things happening happen uh you have kosovo flags being fl- flown around etc so these things can happen I'm, i mean especially at the world cup national flags are there you know so to speak but i don't think this is the individuals basically coming up and doing that i don't think it's a political push by any official institution that is a little bit different than wearing uh i mean again i'm not saying that they shouldn't wear it uh ideally they probably should but my point is that it goes against technically so called rules and this is not the first time remember a lot of times even in premier league some of these things are not allowed like you, you of course have these armbands in england etc they are allowed uh but in when it comes to national tournaments it it may not be as different again also have to remember that um, the country is already being hammered quite a lot so even if they did allow it i don't know if it if it would have done anything so to speak but yeah i mean there are certain gray areas but i i i kind of see the justification i think it's it's fair if they are saying everybody is welcome uh that's i think it's fine i i i don't think of course being a homosexual anywhere especially in middle eastern countries we know that that that's an issue but i don't know i mean i will criticize them for it but i don't know if that will be a disqualification uh, disqualifying criteria for me at least yeah so i think uh, uh, i will go into the last topic that i would like to initiate that is the big capital like i think it's the first time a major sporting event is saying something like in the last moment budweiser was snubbed off the whole deal basically sponsoring like its advertisements and everything uh in qatar because like qatar is a islamic state and it has problem with alcohol and all ideological and all so what does this means for the future uh, big capital in big sporting events olympics or fifa when it is hosted in a certain ideological state because this is i think uh, this is this the first time anything of this proportion has happened like a big cap big uh, multinational corporation has been snubbed off its money because of ideological uh, the way the country the host country thinks use finest what does it mean for like the big capital in sports uh, i don't think it uh, means the beginning of anything negative for them if anything i think uh, the experience that qatar has had through this world cup shows that uh, the pressures on ideological states is only going to grow and they're only going to be forced into making increasing concessions if they want to uh, engage with uh, formats that see a large number of western countries interact with them i'm not making a moral judgment about who is right and who is wrong who is justified and who is not it's just the way i see it on the ideological point i'm sure there must have been uh, at least smaller events where certain brands have been either removed or not removed but in the case of qatar it is not surprising but i don't see it as a major blow of any kind perhaps you know brands may soften their image a little bit i'm i'm not talking about alcohol brands i'm talking about other brands other brands may soften their image to sell a little but i don't think it means anything much in the long run because uh, if anything the take away from this world cup for me has been 
that uh, the more hardline ideological you become the easier the easier you are as an enemy and even a so, sorry the easier you are uh, to be painted as an enemy and i think even though qatar with all of its soft power has not been able to uh, you know just deftly uh, dodge all the rhetorical bullets that have been shot their way i think they have been hit quite hard i think the reputation has also been hit quite hard and i think this is the uh, beginning of a more tense period that you'll see between any ideological state that hosts a sporting event or a larger event of any form uh, that sees and that sees engagement from countries that don't necessarily subscribe to those values including india by the way i think i mean we are not we can't afford <laughs> afford a fifa no, world cup no I'm, on on india i would just wait for one uh, just on a lighter note pehle let us first gain hosting rights for something tab hi dekh lenge no no i mean no i think that no i mean we we were, we were already i think we had the uh, uh, under uh, 17 or 16 uh, uh, women's yeah, world cup and i think the corruption screwed it up na then yeah but my my point is that it's not like we we it's it's totally out of the blue but i remember by the way uh, i read a report i remember two weeks ago one or two weeks ago that india is not very seriously but there have been official uh, request by official channels to actually prepare a bid f- uh, for some 2030 some late 2030 world cup uh, fifa 20, world cup by the olympics yeah olympics sorry not world cup yeah so Simple it's not plan. like india is not going to try i mean space I I'm no, not saying we, we are going to get it, but all I'm saying is that India will get, if not bigger sporting events, they will sure, get. I mean, India will get yeah, smaller when, sporting. Yeah, but I mean, that's how no, the ticket mean, out, right? That changes what, will occur up to that point. It's not like India is going to grow increasingly. <laughs> I I I know, I I don't think I don't think I don't think India is India or anyone in like a lot of these assessments are not actually based on real assessments. Also, some of these assessments are also of how. different countries view india in general and i don't think it it will only depend on which government is in power and what is happening in ideological etc as we've seen in the last 8 to 5 to 8 years a uh, human rights etc have become a centerpiece of all conversations and even small incidents or issues which are which would be considered not as big uh, or as important uh you know to be raked up by these countries it can happen so you never know i mean the bar of what is an issue and what is not can al- can also change in those 10 years right so i, I i'm not going to be you know the, i mean of course i'm not being overly you know i mean cautious but at the same time i i'm i'm i can totally see something like this maybe not at this scale uh but it it it, it can come under under scrutiny so i think um of course we don't have to be as mindful i mean what china will go through or china is going through is also because of uh, the absolute i mean the, the the sheer scale and the brutality of what they're doing in in xinjiang etc is is unmatchable although many would many in india would like to make comparisons but there is no comparison uh but yeah i think there would be more scrutiny in general for all countries not just i think uh, india or people countries in asia but elsewhere as well uh, even in i think now in eastern europe right i mean russia has totally gone out of uh, you know uh, global sports in general i mean russia remember was supposed to be in this world cup it's not it, it qualified etc so and again i think also one thing and last this is my last point i think we we've all started i mean i don't remember the last time i saw a world cup where people were 
supporting or um, you know jeering a team based on you know certain geopolitical or foreign policy and how they view the government i mean it, that's always happened i'm not saying it hasn't but the scale of it uh, was very different uh, so people are viewing countries very much uh, uh, along with you know the governments and what they do they i mean of course it could it could also be confirmation bias in the sense that maybe it's all the people that i follow and i talk to and you know maybe they are more aware of these things and hence they project all these things but i do think that uh, now a lot of people look at one country and they think or they talk about these issue and that issue etc etc so i think it's going to be a it's going to be under the magnifying glass perhaps not as much but yeah still something to look forward to yeah just uh, just to state that uh, i think the government uh, is trying to build a big sports park in ahmedabad and it will project it as possible venue for 2032 or 2036 olympics if i am not wrong but okay so that is i think but that the is beer the beer one but the but, but just to end the beer one was quite weird actually that has never happened before so and it was that's done in the last moment that, that's why i'm saying big capital uh, the rejection of big but, capital based on ideology but you know, it was not it was not it was actually not rejection i don't know i i, I don't think it was you know big capital i mean uh, i think it did actually uh, did very bad to uh, you know the these these alcohol beverage companies because they had already placed in huge orders etc i mean of course uh, that not, doesn't necessarily mean that all of it will be wasted but the prop point is that they already prepared they promised that they are going to allow beers inside the stadium now the problem of course is that that enforcing it would have been a little problematic and they probably thought that um, how do we enforce it and you know pe- there could be some cases where police would have to get involved and you know drunk fans will get in and what is inside the stadium outside the stadium so i think they kind of from their perspective i understand a uh, lot of people say that oh beer nahi peenge to kya ho jayega fair but i would say that they did this was a little wrong because if they were not if they were not going to allow it then why did you wait like 5 days 10 days before the world cup to actually say no that's that was not uh, very nice of them and i think uh, some people were really you know uh, upset with that as well yeah so i think uh, we will end it here and uh, that was quite a passionate discussion i think this is the first such passionate discussion i think in this podcast series and i like it this is how it should be uh, abhivardhan so can you tell the technical details about where the listeners can access the audio recording and the podcast basically everything sure just one thing to say i was watching uh, <laughs> the second half of the world cup at geo cinema and same. the second half <laughs> same, same. actually ended for fun but anyways i added my insight since i'm not a fifa fan anyways so um uh, everybody can go to bharatpacific.com uh, they can also go to anchor.fm/indopacific and uh, if you go and search on google the bharat pacific you will get access to a youtube channel by the way to hear this conversation um you can go to um anchor.fm/indopacific or you go to spotify and write the bharat pacific so you can hear that conversation outright there uh, we will publish this uh, publish this uh, this uh, this one also maybe in a few days um, next week we don't know if we will have it but if we will have the uh, roundup uh, we will definitely inform on twitter so till then thanks and just an additional detail next week we are going to have an interview with uh, sanahashmi it will be available in youtube channel so 
yeah, we will discuss taiwan also we have already done couple of interviews for the youtube channel of bharat pacific you can also access in the youtube those interviews with uh, abhishek mishra and vivek mishra both were from orf so yes so that is it uh, use finest thank you very much for joining T- today was a unusually high session i hope it was not late for you or not too long for you but uh, uh, it was, it was wonderful man thanks for the experience